0: My name is John Yeager. For those of you who do not know me, I was a part of the pastor track this last year, and it is my delight to be up here this morning. Like Cruz said earlier, we are going to sit just on this one and a half verse today, and then Cruz next week is going to take the whole chunk of the nine verses. But we're going to sit on this verse and a half to answer the question, what is the essential role of an Old Testament priest? What is the essential role of an Old Testament priest? If you remember, back in chapter 1, we saw this oracle to Malachi address the priest specifically, calling out the priest specifically. And here again in chapter 2, we are going to see, once again, the priests are being directed specifically, being called out in this oracle to Malachi. So we need to understand, and we need to come to terms with, what was the essential role of a priest? What was going on that they were not doing, not fulfilling their call? And so the oracle says here in this verse and a half, specifically, what is the essential role of a priest? So that's what we're going to answer today. So if you would, pray with me. Father, we are grateful to gather together this morning as your people. To gather together this morning underneath your spoken word, we the light to hear it. But we need your spirit to come and give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear your word to us. So would you do that to us today? Enable us to see and hear and taste the light in your word this morning. Would you do that today? We ask in your grace. Amen. Three summers ago, Brittany and I, my wife, led a trip of 17 college students to northern Greece. We were going with a Christian organization that was sending us with 17 college students to a university in northern Greece. And there, our main objective was to get to know some fellow students at this university and to share the gospel with them. And it was going to be a six-week trip. Okay, so the in-country missionary was going to set up different trips that we could take on the weekends to get to know the country and to get to know the culture. And so one of those trips that the missionary was going to set up for us was a hike to a place called Vicos Gorge. And I don't don't know if you were like me, but I had never heard of what Vicos Gorge is. And the only question this in-country missionary asked us is if we had anyone on our team that was physically handicapped and wasn't going to be able to hike. And I told him, no, we didn't. Okay, so he said, great, this is going to be one of the most beautiful natural scenes you'll see in all of Greece. One of the most beautiful natural scenes you'll see in all of Greece. So I said, all right, great, let's do it. Sign us up. So the time came on our trip where it was the day that we were supposed to wake up, six o'clock in the morning, to meet our guide and our buses to take us on this hike. If you know anything about college students, six o'clock in the morning and college students do not mix well. But we had them all up, still half asleep, eating our breakfast at our hotel, waiting for our guide and our buses to pick us up. One of the awesome things about our hotel was that they would serve every single morning these lovely little chocolate-filled, or I'm sorry, croissant-filled, chocolate-filled croissants. There we go. Chocolate-filled croissants for breakfast every single morning. It was lovely. So there we were, half asleep, six o'clock in the morning, eating our chocolate-filled croissants waiting for our guide, and our buses show up. And then all of a sudden, our guide steps into the courtyard, and his name is Christos. And Christos walks in, steps in, and our jaws drop, exposing our half-eaten chocolate-filled croissants. Because Christos steps in, and he looks like he's about to go on a hike that depends upon his life. He's got boots on, these huge hiking boots, they go up half his leg and strap up. The laces strap up 20 times. He's got this huge backpack on, taller than his own torso, filled to the brim. One of those backpacks that not only go around your, your shoulders here, but strap around your waist. And then he's got two hiking poles, one in each hand. He steps in this courtroom, and then all of a sudden we are confronted that we are facing something much, much more harder than we were thinking. This was going to be a hike that was going to be a lot harder than we were thinking. And what does Christos step in and do? He steps in. He looks at us. We look at him. And he goes off on us. He goes, oh, he, which is no in Greek. He says, oh, he, are you really wearing tennis shoes? Oh, he, are you wearing sandals? Oh, he, are you wearing shorts for this hike? What are you thinking? Oh, he are you eating chocolate-filled croissants for (laughs) breakfast? He goes off on us. And then he loads us up in the bus, and what we thought was going to be a couple-hour hike ended up being an eight-hour hike. It took us two hours to hike down into the middle of the gorge. Two hours. And then another two hours we spent hiking along in the center of the gorge and then a long four-hour hike back up to the top. Don't get me wrong. It was beautiful. It was amazing. The sights were wonderful. But it was a lot more than we were expecting. And I could tell you so many amazing stories of what Christos did on that hike and the ways he showed us through this gorge. But it was so taxing that at the very last mile of this hike, going back up the gorge, the very last mile, we had one poor, sweet, lovely girl just struggling so much that Brittany and I and another student had to stay back with her and finish that last mile as every 15 minutes, she was on the verge of fainting and just dropping. And so every 15 minutes, we would hike a little bit, lay her down on the ground. Brittany would sprinkle water on her just to revive her and keep her with us. We would get her back up Walk another 15 minutes, lay her down. Brittany would sprinkle water on her just to keep her with us. And over and over again, we'd be doing that the last mile of this trip. This is how taxing this trip was. And as we're finishing, we're getting up to the top. There was Christos standing there looking down at us with a beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other, like a good Greek. (laughs) Standing at the top, looking down at us and probably thinking, Bet you're not enjoying this chocolate-filled croissants anymore. Because we were miserable. It was such a taxing hike, but a beautiful one. Christos was a priest to us on that day. He was a priest to us. He was the priest of Vicos Gorge. We don't think of priest in that way. If we do have any kind of connotation or thought in our head about what a priest is like, we probably picture someone that has a little white collar. Maybe he's a Catholic priest. And if we think of that, we think of maybe the negative things we've heard on the news about priests. And so we don't have a very good image in our head about what a priest is. And if we have a somewhat biblical image of a priest, we probably think he's something like an Old Testament butcher. Just chopping up sacrifices, spreading blood here, spreading blood there, spreading blood on himself. We think he's probably just some kind of a bloody butcher. But today we are going to see, and Malachi is going to address what specifically is the role of a priest. And what we're going to see is that he is something a lot more like Christos on our hike than any of those other images. We are going to see that the essential role of a priest was to bring the reality of God's truth and the reality of his presence into the midst of the people. When the people were disillusioned and they thought God was somewhere far off, up in the cloud somewhere, distant and remote from their situation, a priest was to step in and bring the reality of God's truth and the reality of his presence into their midst. So as we look at this first verse in chapter 2, verse 7, the very first part, Malachi is going to give us the first job description of a priest. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. The lips of a priest should guard knowledge. The first question we need to ask is, what knowledge? What knowledge is he guarding? Is it just experiential knowledge? Is it old age wisdom? No, it's none of these. It is the specific knowledge of God's covenant with his people. What's called the law of God in the Old Testament, which was handed down from Moses on Mount Sinai. You remember when the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt and Moses delivered them out of slavery to be what? Their own kingdom. And who is to be their king? God himself. But to be a kingdom, you got to know your king. You got to know how to follow him. And so God Gave them his law. God revealed to them who their king was. Now we have trouble understanding or dealing with this word "law." We have trouble understanding what it means. It sounds constrictive, binding. Sounds negative. And we see this in everyday life. You know those signs that are next to every single road that has a number on it, and it says speed limit. We often think that really is just speed suggestion. How many of us actually on Highway 95, what is it, 55 miles per hour? How many of us actually go 55? I know I struggle with that. But how about Route 1? I think that's 50, really. Maybe at 9 o'clock in the morning at 5 in the afternoon because it's all backed up with traffic. But we struggle with that. Just recently, my wife and I were in Chicago. And as we were walking through downtown Chicago a lot, for some reason, as we were sitting there, standing across the street, that little red hand just bothered me. Saying, do not walk. You can't right now. What would I do when I saw that red red hand flash up? I would look down the street, and if there was a split second that I could jump across, I would take it. Because for some reason, I didn't want that little red hand to tell me what to do. I didn't want to have to wait for that little white man to flash up to tell me I could walk. I didn't like that little red hand. We struggle with that idea of law. sounds constrictive, binding. And even as we think about the New Testament, we hear what Paul has to say. And we hear him say, rightly, that the law pointed out how sinful we are. The law showed us that we were sinful beings. And that's a good thing, because it drives us to the grace of God offered in Jesus Christ. But we associate that and say, well, that means the law really is the problem. Don't get me away from the law. I don't want the law because it just shows me how sinful I am. But in reality, the law was not the problem, but we were. And so as we look at the, New Te- uh, the Old Testament, we need to realize that the law, when God gave his people the law, It was a good and gracious gift of God. It was a good and gracious gift of God. It was good because what did the law do? It revealed to his people who he was. It answered the question, who God was. It revealed that he is holy, righteous, good, and gracious. It made the distinction between God and his holiness and his righteousness and his people, Unholy and unrighteous. It made the distinction between God, the Creator, and His creation. It revealed the nature, the being of God. That was a good gift to His people, for His people to know who He was. And it was a gracious gift. How was it gracious? Because not only did it reveal who He was, but it revealed His desire for His people, it revealed His will for His people it revealed that he was for them, that he wanted to be with them, that he wanted them to be like he was, righteous and holy. The law was a good and gracious gift of God. This is the whole reason the psalmist in Psalm 1 can say this about the law. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of God. And on his law, he meditates day and night. This is why in Psalm 19 you can say the law of the Lord is what? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, rejoicing the heart. More to be desired than fine gold. Sweeter also than honey. The law of God was a good and gracious gift of God. It wasn't binding. It wasn't constrictive. It was unleashing them to the greatest good. Unleashing them to the greatest good. By revealing who God was and his desire for his people. That God was holy, righteous, good, and perfect. And his people should be like him and be with him. Therefore, the priests were to know and love and delight in this law. They were to be fully immersed, soaked in God's goodness and graciousness in it. And therefore, guarding the law means essentially two things. It means preserving and guarding who God is, the nature of God, that he's holy, that he's righteous. And it means preserving God's will for his people, preserving his communion with his people. And the priest accomplished this by knowing law and declaring it to the people. And we do this all the time. Think about the furniture that you have. You probably have a piece of furniture that has been passed down from your family and from the generations, or maybe even jewelry. You probably have some jewelry that maybe was passed down from your grandmother, maybe your great-grandmother, maybe even further down. Why do we do that? Why do we hold on to those pieces? Sometimes they don't even fit with what we have. Sometimes they're completely misplaced from what everything else we have. But for some reason, they give us a sense of connection. They connect us with our family. And so we keep it unique. We preserve it. We guard it. We don't get it mixed up. We don't get that piece of furniture mixed up with our Ikea furniture. We keep them separate. We guard that antique. We don't let that piece of jewelry get mixed up with our fake pearls. We guard it. We keep it unique. Christos, our guard, he guarded his knowledge of Vicos Gorge. He was not about to let some college-age Americans think this is going to be a walk in the park. But he guarded it. He guarded his vast understanding of the terrain of Vicos Gorge. So a priest, when God, or oh, I'm sorry, when the people were disillusioned, and the people thought, God must be far off, remote, distant from us, not involved with our situation right now. A priest was to step in by guarding the knowledge of the law and show them who God was and his will for them. He was to step in and preserve the revealed law of God. Secondly, this verse goes on and says, the people should seek instruction from his mouth. Do you hear that? The people should seek instruction from his mouth. That means two things. The priest was to be trusted for instruction. If the people are to seek him, he's to be trusted. They need to know his character. They need to know that he is a Psalm 1 man who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night. They need to know his character. They need to know who he is, his knowledge of the law, and his delightful obedience in it. And secondly, he needs to know them. He needs to know how to instruct them. He needs to know their life, their situation, their struggles. What specifically is it that the people need to hear? The people need to know him, and he needs to know their people. Because his instruction is a guide for the people. So not just know, but to apply the word of God. His instruction should be a guide that should bring them to the finest gold, to the sweetest honey. It should bring them to their souls rejoicing and being revived. It should lead them to delightful righteousness. The priest's instruction was there to guide the people in the very situation that they were in, And to guide them into delightful righteousness. This is when duty becomes delight and they come together. The law was not just a list of do, do, do. But it was a delightful righteousness. Duty and delight coming together. Picture this. If I were to come home and surprise my wife with some flowers. If I were to come home from work and surprise my wife with flowers and I open the door and there she is smiling at me and I hand her these flowers and she says, oh, Johnny, you didn't have to do that. And I said, no, Brittany, I did. It was my duty. It was your duty? It was your duty. I'll take the flowers, but rethink what you just said. Is it just my duty to surprise my wife with flowers? Is it my duty to go out of my way and serve my wife? No, no, it's not just my duty, but it's my delight. It's when duty and delight come together. And the law was the same way. The priest's instruction and his guarding of the word of God was to instruct them and to lead them their souls' delight and into delightful righteousness. Do we see God's word in this way? Do we see it as simply duty? Or do we see it as a delight? These are questions we constantly need to be asking our heart. Because the priest's role here was to bring the people into delightful righteousness. When God seemed far off and his law did not seem relevant to them in their situation, and it was better to look at him as someone off up in the clouds, not really caring about their situation or having any word in their situation, a priest was to step in and instruct them into delightful righteousness into God's delightful law. Why? The last part of this verse says, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Why is he guarding the word of God? Why is he instructing the people in that word? Because he is a messenger or a mediator of God to his covenantal people. God was to be their king. He pulled them out of Israel or out of Egypt to be their own kingdom. And to be their own kingdom, they needed to know their God, their king. And as their king, God dwelt in the temple, in their midst. But this could only happen. God's holiness and his righteousness could only dwell in the midst of the people through a mediator. Otherwise, this could not work out. This would not be. And the priests was to be that mediator. That mediator that represented God towards the people and the people towards God. He was that link between what was holy and righteous, God their king, and what was unholy and unrighteous, the people. Between what was uncommon, God their king, and between what was common, the people. He was to be that link. Therefore, when the people became disillusioned, The priest was to reflect to the people God's righteousness, God's holiness, his graciousness, his goodness towards his people. And how was he supposed to do this? By bringing the word of the Lord to them. By knowing it, by guarding it, by preserving it, by instructing the people. Bringing the people to their king to commune with God, to be with God. When God seems far off, up in the clouds, distant and remote, we all need someone to bring the reality of his truth and the reality of his desire to be with his people to us. Our lives, our circumstances, our struggle with sin, our disillusionment, all causes us to be disconnected and to think that, You know what? God is not really amongst us. He doesn't really care about what's going on in our situation. And then we twist and make God to be something that he's not. And then we need someone to step in and say, no, that's not who God is. This is what God has revealed himself as. And this is his will to be with his people, to be for his people, for his people to be like him. And we clearly see that the priest failed at this. The priest failed to live up to their job. In verse 8, the very next verse, it says, But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. The priest failed to live up to their job. They failed to represent God to his people. Back in chapter 1, it said the priests did not honor God. They did not fear God. And because they did not represent God to this people, they ended up hurting and not helping. Their half-hearted priestly work led to half-hearted worshipers. Their half-hearted pursuit to guard the knowledge of who God is and his will for them polluted their understanding of who he was. Their half-hearted instruction corrupted their souls. The priest led the people to a distant and remote God that was not connected to their affections or worth their attention or their pursuit. The priest enabled their disillusionment. But in that time, man, They needed God for who he was. They needed to be reminded, they needed to see that God is holy, that God is righteous, and he's gracious, and he's slow to anger, and he loves them, and he continues to love them. And the priest was to step in and to show them that. But the priest failed. They failed to live up to their job. Well, we can't stop here. We see that the priest of Malachi clearly failed. But we all, right now and today, have a high priest that has not failed. He fulfilled the role of the priesthood. And his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect fulfillment of the priesthood. Let me read you just real quickly. This is all over the New Testament. But let me just give you a glimpse in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 26. It says, the former priest, the priest that we're talking about today in Malachi and in the Old Testament, the former priest were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus has fulfilled the priesthood by being an eternal sacrifice and a perfect sacrifice. He is the word of God with us in the flesh. Jesus himself, the perfect representation of who God is and his will. The word of God in the flesh, God with us. He has perfect knowledge, perfect instruction, and provides perfect communion between God and his people. He brings the reality of God in our midst to see and to taste. We see the reality of God as we witness the clear truth of God in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, the nature of God is perfectly testified to. Earlier in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. Do you hear that? In Jesus Christ, we see who God is but he also enables us to taste the reality of who God is. We, through Jesus Christ, through his atoning work on the cross, are brought into communion. God with man, man with God. Perfect communion through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Jesus taking our rightful penalty, taking our sin upon himself, bringing us into The divine fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ fulfilling the priesthood, fulfilling that mediator role, bringing us together. Christos, our high priest of Vico's Gorge, he didn't just guard the knowledge of Vico's Gorge, he didn't just instruct us. But what did he do? He brought us into the actual presence of Vico's Gorge. And even though how painful it was, it was magnificent. The sights that we got to see of this gorge were absolutely magnificent. And if we weren't brought into that presence, we would have never seen them. We would have never experienced them. And what else did Christos do? He brought us out alive. Without him, I'm pretty sure at least one of us wouldn't have made it. Without him, we would have not seen what we saw. Without him, this was impossible. And we see with Jesus Christ, our perfect and eternal high priest, the same thing. That Jesus himself, through his atoning death, brings us into the presence of God. He doesn't just guard the knowledge. He doesn't just instruct us but he leads us into that communion, that fellowship with God himself. And what else does he do? He sustains us in that fellowship, in that communion. He keeps us alive in the presence of God. So when God seems far off, up in the clouds, distant and remote, Jesus shows us the firm reality of his presence. Glorious presence with us. God with us in our struggle with sin. God with us in our confusion in this life. God with us in our pain and our suffering. So what does the role of a priest in the Old Testament, what does it mean to us today? I want to move into two areas of application, specific application. The first, there's this beautiful reality in the New Testament that even though Jesus fulfilled the priesthood and he is all of, and all of our chief shepherd, our high priest, he has given the church pastors, pastors underneath the chief shepherd to lead and to guide the church. I believe there's two truths here from the role of a high priest that a pastor must cling to. And this is very humbling Coming from myself, because as I aspire to become a pastor, I am directly speaking to myself. And if I do not want to do these things, then I don't need to be called to be a pastor. The first is that a pastor must preserve God's entire revelation, God's entire spoken word. A pastor must allow for the word of God to be spoken. Not for our word, not what we want spoken, but God's word. He must guard and preserve the entire word of God. Who he is revealed in his word and his will and desire for his people. That's why you don't see Cruz. That's why you don't see Moran or Justin or Dan or anyone else get up here and bring their favorite poem, bring their favorite book of the week, bring 10 ways to have a good life. That's why you don't see me come up here and bring the Lord of the Rings series and expound on the priestly-like role of Gandalf the Grey towards Bilbo and Frodo Baggins. As much as I love Tolkien, as much as we may love these other things, and as much as they may help or support God's word. We are bound as pastors to the text. We are bound on what God has said and revealed to us. And we must allow by guarding and instructing the word to speak. Secondly, a pastor must represent God for who he is not what the listeners want him to be. A pastor must reflect and teach and instruct God for who he is, not what our circumstances want him to be, not what our culture or this world wants him to be. Our lives, our world, our struggle with sin, will always want something different than God in his glory and his holiness before us. We'll always want it. Even pastors will want to change, will want to see God differently. But that must not be. Through the preaching of the word, God must be present. God must be in his holiness and in his righteousness and all that he is in his graciousness and his steadfast love must be present. Because we all need God for who he is. We need him for who he is, not just what we want to be in our circumstances. And pastors help this in the church. But there's also another beautiful reality in the New Testament. We call it the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. It's all over the New Testament. That each one of us as individuals, each one of us through the atonement of Jesus Christ are brought into to pursue and draw near to God. This doesn't just have to wait till Sunday. We need Sundays. We need pastors to shepherd underneath the chief shepherd. But the reality is that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the priesthood, bringing us all to come through him into the glorious presence of God. Through Christ, we can all put ourselves before the glorious being of God. We don't have to wait till Sunday. Our communion with God is a place to take our sin a place to take our struggles, a place to take our pain, a place to take our suffering. And sometimes we need to go and be absolutely confronted by the glory of God and absolutely confronted by his holiness, absolutely confronted by his righteousness. We need that. But sometimes we also need to draw near to him to be comforted. To hear once again, you are forgiven. Christ has fulfilled. Christ has been your atonement. Christ is your comfort in pain and in trials. We need to be comforted by his presence. We need to preach to ourselves every single day over and over again. So, do you draw near to him? Do you meditate? His word? Do you find delight in His word? Do you treasure His word? Do you treasure His communion with you? This is also what our gospel communities are for. Because if we're all to be honest, we fail at doing it all alone. We need His people around us to remind us once and again. To bring us before the reality of who God is. And to bring us before the reality of his will for us. That he is to be treasured above everything else in this world. That he is to be delighted above everything else in this world. And with that knowledge, with that truth, with that community, with his communion, we can walk through this life fighting sin, Being transformed. Walking through the painful situations that this life brings. The suffering that we may have to endure. Knowing that he is with us. That we commune with the living God. And that he is to be treasured and delighted above everything else. God can seem far off, distant, remote in this world. But through Christ. He has given us pastors to shepherd us, to lead us, to remind us of these things. He's given us a community. He's given us a way to approach him and to commune with him, to fight our struggles and to be comforted and be delighted in who he is. Let me pray for us. Father, we are absolutely astounded that you would care enough for us sinful beings who flee from you so often, who get won over by this world, who become so disillusioned, confused by our jobs, by our life, by this world. We're astounded that you continue to pursue us and say you are loved and you We'll continue to be loved by the living God why do you pursue us so much we are astounded by that truth help us Lord through the wonderful truth of Jesus fulfilling the priesthood help us draw near to you help us be individuals that meditate and can go along with Psalm 1 and Psalm 19 and say the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul rejoicing the heart, more to be desired than fine gold or anything of this world, more to be delighted in and sweeter than honey. Help us be those people. Let us be a church, God, that is filled with pastors that bring your spoken word so that we may know who you are and may delight ourselves in your will. We are astounded by your grace. And in response, we worship you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.